0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans, Romans chapter 1. This morning we will be reading the text, verses 16 and 17. And as you make your way there, let us come before the Lord and pray for the reading and the preaching of His Word. Gracious and merciful Lord. We are absolutely grateful to be able to be here today. We live in a world that is continually encouraging us to stay away from one another. We live in a world that is, is calling us, Lord, to do away with church. We live in a world that's calling us to not be together. But here we are, Lord. You have given us the ability to live in a, in a place where we can still gather together without fear, unlike so many people that we know. And Father, as we gather here today, we are here to hear Your voice. We are here to learn about You. We are here to experience a deeper relationship with You. And that we, Lord God, are prepared to be changed and shaped by Your Word. Your Word, Lord God, is sufficient for us. Your Word is inerrant to us. And we know that it is profitable to change us and shape us and make us more into the image of Christ. And we pray that you would have your way in our lives today. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author, uh, John MacArthur of Grace Church, he wrote this once. It is a myth to think that because I am somebody famous or well-known or because I am slick or clever or because I package my little presentation in lingo and terminology that's kind of at the core of contemporary vernacular, that somehow this influences people. You know who gets people saved? Or, excuse me, you know what, do you know what gets people saved? Not that kind of influence. What gets people saved is a recognition of who Jesus Christ is and an honest evaluation of their condition and their need for the Savior. What we need is more, is not more people trying to influence society. We need more people preaching the gospel. It's confrontation, not influence. So one of the things that we have talked about in the past that I will remind you of is today um, is the fact that we're sitting here this morning worshiping God the way that we do because of an event that happened 504 years ago. On the 31st of this month, October, in 1517, Martin Luther went to the church at the University of Wittenberg, and on the door, he nailed a document titled, The 95 Thesis. This was an invitation to have a debate about a number of things that the church was teaching that seemed to him to be inconsistent with what the Bible itself teaches. This event, on an ordinary day, inadvertently sparked what what was become known as the Reformation of the church, and it changed the entire world. Today we affirm the doctrines of the Reformation the gospel truth that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All for the glory of God alone. And this is revealed to us through our sole infallible authority for faith and life. And that is scripture alone. The fact that we are not today Roman Catholics enslaved to a system of works righteousness, trying to earn God's favor by our efforts and uh, the things that we do is due to this singular event. Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk, who went to Wittenberg to teach theology, after studied the book of Romans, broke ranks with his beloved church because he came to understand the gospel the church was teaching was not the same gospel that Paul in the scriptures was writing about. You see, the Catholic Church taught that people were saved through faith, but also through their merit. Merit. You certainly can and must believe, but you also had to do things, penances, works to be saved. But Martin Luther reading and studying the book of Romans, doing so in the original Greek language, discovered that salvation is in fact by faith and faith alone. And that revelation changed the entire world. In fact, He was meditating on the very text that we have before us, Romans verse 1, 16, and 17, particularly the part that said that the righteous shall live by faith, that upon meditating and thinking about this and and pouring over the Scriptures, that he rediscovered the simplicity and the power of the gospel. In fact, in his own words, he said, When I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Spirit, and the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. It almost brings me to tears. This is important because Martin Luther had spent years trying and suffering to to try to earn God's love. He believed that somehow if if it was within his power to do enough stuff that he would earn by the Catholic tradition his way into heaven. And all that did for him was make him hopeless and actually begin to hate God because he could do nothing Of all the things that he did, he could do nothing to quell his guilty conscience. But in this text, in the darkness of his room, he found the freedom that his heart had longed for. And in the process began one of the greatest recoveries of the gospel known to man, changing the world and changing the very lives of those who sit in this room today. That is the power of the text that lay before us. It is the text that I have been longing to get to. In fact, the text that we have before us is the thesis statement. It is the purpose statement of this entire letter. The gospel is the power of God to save. Now, if you remember, Paul writes this letter to the Roman church, and he does so for three basic reasons. Number one, he has hopes that he would come to them and and basically set up a base of operations so he can go further west. He wanted to get into Spain. He wanted to go further west in, in Europe. Uh, Secondly, he writes this to ease the tensions between the Jews and the Gentiles there because there were some political and cultural changes in Rome that had shaken up the church's culture and leadership. And third, but most importantly, Paul writes this letter to clearly exposit and explain the gospel of Christ to the Romans. Just as a reminder, the, the church at Rome was not started by any apostles um, or any missionaries. It was started by, by Jewish men who made their way into Jerusalem at Pentecost. And it was during the Feast of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit came upon the early church when the church officially was launched. Right? And the apostles were given the ability to speak different languages, and people heard the gospel in their own language. And Peter preached his first sermon. What did it say? That thousands of people were saved that day. Among those new converts were these Jewish men from the city of Rome. They became followers of Christ and went home and did what they were supposed to. They began a fellowship. They began a church. Well, this church grew and it brought in Gentile converts and it began to flourish. But with no apostles to visit or to give direction, uh, the church was, remained largely immature well, at one point, the Jews in the city were kicked out of the city of Rome, and overnight the church became predominantly led by Gentiles. And then years later, the Jews were allowed to come back, but they found the church being led by Gentile elders, and this set up a tension between these two cultures. Now, Paul wanted to ease these tensions and promote unity, but the main purpose was to make sure that they had a crystal clear understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, nothing brings unity quite like the gospel. In fact, Paul writes to the Romans that he is a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the very gospel of God. And he says that he's under obligation to all kinds of people to proclaim the gospel. And he enthusiastically writes, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Paul wants the Romans to have a very clear understanding of the good news regarding the Son, Jesus Christ. But, but I want you to notice the very next word, the very next word he says, he says, he says here I am, he, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who also who are in Rome, for, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, this little word for is easy to overlook. In fact, oftentimes when we read Paul, we'll read that word and we'll just kind of go through trying to think that we're, you know, we're going to get to the point somewhere missing the fact that that word for is a very important expression in the text. Now, I know how much you love Greek grammar, but but this word for is, is, in, is from the Greek word gar, and this word for is a conjunction. It is a word that connects ideas together. It connects what is, what is being said to what has already been said. It takes these two ideas and, and draws a conclusion. It moves from one place to the next. And so Paul says, right, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome for or because I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now notice the contrast here you have Paul talking about being eager to preach the gospel and then not being ashamed of the gospel. seems like a weird contrast, right? And he connects the dots for us by using a conjunction and in effect is saying, I'm eager to preach the gospel because I am not ashamed of the gospel. Hear that. The reason why I'm eager is because I am not ashamed of the gospel which I think should cause us to sit up and pay attention because we understand Paul's eagerness to preach the gospel, right? But, but why does he, he tell us that he's not ashamed of the gospel? Why emphasize his point? Why not just say, I'm proud of the gospel? Why not just say, I love the gospel? Why does he make a point to say that I'm not ashamed? And to be sure... That's exactly what he says here. The Greek word for ashamed here is a compound word that's made up of two other words. The two words literally mean fitting and disgrace or properly disgraced. Like someone who has been singled out for having misplaced their confidence or support or believing a big lie. That's really the roots of what Paul is saying here. This word means to be personally humiliated, and Paul emphasizes the fact that he is not ashamed. He has not misplaced his confidence. He is not humiliated because of the gospel, which, again, I think we should ask, why does he use such strong language here? Now, there are some who have theorized that Paul really didn't literally mean what he was saying. They were saying that he is basically expressing an understatement. I'm not ashamed Which means simply, I'm proud of the gospel. It's kind of like when your kids do something really stupid, and you look at them and go, "I am not amused," right? Right. What you mean is, I am very irritated, right? You're in big trouble. That's how we, how some would theorize he means that. Some think that he's speaking in hyperbole like that, saying, "I'm not ashamed," means I'm really, really proud. But the problem is, is that it's it's a really weird thing for him to say in this particular text. Not to mention, it doesn't fit the context, right? It's right. If that's what he meant to say, right? How he could have just said, "I'm eager to preach the gospel because I'm I'm proud," or he could just skip that all altogether and said, "I'm eager to preach the gospel because it's the power of God to save." But he makes a point. To emphasize this, right? He makes a point to express the fact that he's not ashamed. And I believe he means exactly that, that he is not ashamed. In fact, this isn't the only time that this subject of being ashamed of the gospel comes up in the New Testament. In 2 Timothy, Paul tells the young pastor, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul tells Timothy, who, who we know was left in Ephesus to bring reformation back to that church who was facing an uphill battle, he tells him not to be ashamed of the message of the gospel. And not only did Paul talk about this, but Jesus himself did as well. We know that, right? Mark chapter 8, verse 28, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, my, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Both Jesus and Paul warned others about being ashamed of the gospel, to be, to be humiliated by the gospel. Why? And why would Paul make such a strong point to say that he's not ashamed of the gospel here in this text? Well, the reason why is because in the first century world, there were a lot of reasons to have temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. There was a lot of temptation to want to turn your back on the gospel. There was a lot of reasons to want to run away from the gospel. You see, the message of the gospel was, and by the way, still is today, offensive to many people. The reason why some people are ashamed is the gospel, shame to the gospel is they don't share it. And the reason why they don't share it, and the reason why people try to dumb it down and soften it is because Because as Paul says, for the word of the cross is folly. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is offensive to those who are not being saved by it. We know that. It offends people. It offended people in the first century. And it still offends people today. That's why Christians are the most despised and hated group of people in the secular world. We see that in the world around us. We know that, right? There's so much tolerance for every other point of view. There's so much tolerance for every perspective. It doesn't matter, you know, Muslim, Hindu, every other group. But the Christian perspective is always lambasted and lampooned. The gospel is offensive. Now, you might why is the good news offensive? Why is the truth of God, that God so loved the world and that he gave his only son, why is that offensive? The reason why the gospel is offensive is because it confronts us with the truth. As John MacArthur pointed out, and the truth is we by nature are not good people as we suppose The gospel confronts us with that truth that we're not good people who occasionally do bad things. We're not people who are good at heart, who occasionally make mistakes. We are people born totally corrupt, sinful to the core. We are broken and worthless before God. We are totally depraved. We only do the good things that we do because we are made in God's image. And there is still a portion of that image that still resides in us. And we do the good things that we do by the grace of God. That He allows us to do those things. That He doesn't allow us to become as completely sinful as we can be. The gospel confronts us with the truth of who God really is. That He is holy, righteous, and just, and perfect. And it confronts us with who we are. That we are sinful, pitiful, vain, Jealous, gossiping, rebels to a holy God. That is the starting point of the gospel. If you don't get there, you never get to the end. The gospel confronts us with that truth and it also convicts us of our sin. The gospel holds up for us the mirror of God's law. Everybody wants to think that the God's law has no purpose. It does. The gospel is extricably connected to the to the law, the gospel holds up the mirror of God's law and perfection, and helps us to see the sin in our lives, and it convicts us of our vanity, of our selfishness, our pride, our greed, our unforgiveness, and of our sexual sin, which is particularly something that that cultures always push back on—sexual sin in all forms. Sexual sin is the sin that culture always wants to redefine in terms of freedom, hence the sexual revolution of the 1960s. The first century Roman culture was a very decadent culture, and all forms of sexual deviancy were accepted and encouraged, much like today. And if there's anything that offends people is the notion that their sexual proclivities, that their, that their desires are seen as sinful in the eyes of God. That it's not simply a matter of choice or simply a matter of lifestyle or simply a matter of being born a certain way. But all sexual sin is sin in the eyes of God. Fornication, which is sex before marriage. Promiscuity. Promiscuity. Adultery, pornography, homosexuality, all sexual relationships outside of the covenant marriage between a man and a woman is sinful in the eyes of God. And the gospel convicts people of their sin and that conviction hurts. It it offends, it it makes us uneasy. This is a very unpopular truth about the gospel then and today. Even the, the Jewish You see, the message of the gospel was and still is offensive to many people. The reason why some are ashamed of the gospel and don't share it and dumb it down is because, as Paul says, the word of the cross is folly. But not only does the gospel confront us and convict us of our sin, it is contrary to to all other religions. The gospel is contrary to all other religious systems. I don't know if you realize that. Even the religious Jews, the Judaizers, right, held on to works righteousness. As Paul you know, wrote to the Galatians in, in chapter 5, verse 11, brothers, if, uh, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision... Why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. You see, Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians because a group of Jewish men went to that church after Paul left and convinced them that being saved by grace was not enough. That faith in Christ was not enough. They had to become Jewish. They had to become obedient to the law. And Paul wrote this letter to straighten them out and say, what's wrong with you? But the truth is, the default of all other religions is you must do something to make God love you. Do you realize that? That every other faith tradition, every other religion, it is on you to do something to make God love you. You must do something to earn your salvation or to get into heaven. You must do something by your good deeds, that your good deeds ought to outweigh your bad deeds on some cosmic scale in the sky somewhere. This is the way for Islam. This is the way for Buddhism. This is the way for the LDS church. This is the way for Jehovah's Witnesses. This is the way for um, for um, Unitarians, that you have to do something in order for God to accept you. But the gospel is completely contrary to that. The gospel makes it clear that you can't do anything to fix it. You are not capable. Not only are you a sinner, but you will never, by your own effort, reconcile yourself into the presence of God. You cannot overcome your sinful nature. You cannot do enough stuff to outweigh the bad in your life. You are helpless and hopeless on your own. The Christian faith tells you that the only way for you to be saved is by God's grace and grace alone. This is contrary to all other religious traditions and it's contrary to all other world views. All of the world views, other than Christianity, tend to be centered on men, centered on man and who he is, right? And all the proposed solutions. For all the problems that the world faces are always centered somehow on man doing something or doing enough to become good. This is what we see in the world around us. This is at the heart of secularism. This is at the heart of humanism. This is at the heart of Marxism and communism, by the way. There is this belief that somehow, way, mankind can elevate himself to a status that all of his problems will be solved if he'll just be good enough. This is, by the way, the heart of modern-day feminism. It's also at the heart of the modern-day social justice movement, which is rooted in cultural Marxist theory. This idea that somehow that we will, by our own efforts, find a way to overcome our cultural sins. All of these ideas are based on the understanding that somehow mankind has within his own ability to, to make penance for his wrongdoings and do enough good stuff to solve all of his own problems. But the gospel says you can't do it. The gospel says you're a broken sinner living in a broken world that has no hope besides God. The gospel is contrary to all other religions and worldviews, and it convicts us and confronts us of our sin, and it's offensive to so many people, and because of it, the gospel gets people into trouble. Right? The gospel wouldn't be offensive if there wasn't a penalty for the gospel, right? The gospel wouldn't be a big deal people get in trouble for promoting it. But this has been true since the very beginning. The gospel, or the good news, because it is so offensive to so many people, gets people into trouble all the time. As the apostle wrote in 2 Corinthians, he writes, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking about, I'm talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Why did the Apostle Paul experience so much violence and hatred? It's because he boldly proclaimed the truth of this offensive gospel. People were not being saved or offended by the gospel And they respond with hatred and indignation. People don't want to be confronted in their sin. People don't want to be convicted. And so they seek to verbally assault people. They seek to to get people fired. We see that happening all the time today. We've seen people who express their sincere Christian beliefs on social media removed from social media. People have been fired for expressing their convictions. People have been sued like cake bakers for faithfully standing up for the gospel. The gospel gets people into trouble all the time, and let's be honest. The gospel also gets people killed. I mean, there's the teeth, right? This is where the rubber meets the road. Do you really believe what you say you believe? This is the real test. The gospel gets people killed. Paul himself had people put to death over the gospel. And he was on his way to arrest and have more Christians killed, but he was confronted by God on the road to Damascus. And all of the apostles, except the apostle John, were martyred and killed because they would not deny the gospel. And even today, people are dying for their faith. As as we've talked about before in Afghanistan, Afghanistan, As our country abandoned those people, the Taliban moved in and they went house to house looking for those who would not deny the gospel and they murdered them right where they found them. The gospel is not only offensive to the rest of the world, but people die for professing and preaching it, right? And they will continue to be that way. They will continue to be that way. And so there is a lot of temptation. There's a lot of temptation in the world around us to be ashamed of the gospel. But in spite of this temptation, despite of the dangers, despite the specter of violence, Paul makes it clear that he's eager to preach the gospel in Rome, in spite of the pressure, in spite of the backlash he would face against the philosophers and the soldiers. He said, I'm not afraid. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he tells us why he is not ashamed. He says, for, by the way, which is another conjunction. There's one after the next. You have to follow the the train of thought. For, or because, it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. Why is Paul not afraid or ashamed of the gospel? It's not because it makes him feel better as a person. It's not because he's living his best life now. Right? As some would tell you that's what it's about. No, he's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God himself for salvation. If there's a truth in this text to let sink in your heart, let that one sink in the gospel, the truth about who God is, the truth about who you are in light of who God is, and the truth about what God has done for you in spite of who you are. The good news is simply, not just simply a wonderful message about the grace of God, it is the very power of God for salvation. It is the power of God to reconcile sinful men back into relationship with God himself. The gospel, the message of the gospel is the the power of God to justify those who believe. It is the power of God to redeem lost sinners. It is the power of God to sanctify them and change them and shape them more and more into the image of Christ. The gospel is the good news, is the very power of God to change the entire world. And it has. But not only that, let's think about the implications of what this is saying. Because in our modern culture, we forget that the gospel, the unadulterated truth of the good news, is the power of God to save. Because for some reason, we think that other things, people believe that other things are the power of God to save. That's why we see the church in the condition that it is today. All right? You see, Ministries of mercy, as important as they are, and even though they show the love of Christ, ministries of mercy are not the power of God to save. I want you to hear me and understand me. Ministries of mercy are important. We should feed people. We should love people. We should clothe them. We should reach out into the community when people are hurting. We should be ministers of mercy. But understand, those things are not the power of God to save anyone. People don't get saved because you feed them. People don't get saved because you care. There are lots of people I care for who are going to hell right now. Those things help for us to build relationships so we can share the gospel, but they don't save anyone. We must understand that. Right. So many people will look to ministries of mercy and think that that's what they're called to do only. So many people are afraid to share the gospel that they find comfort in doing good works like these things that will lead. And they think that, that by doing that, I'm leading people to Christ. It is not true. You're simply demonstrating that you're scared and ashamed to share the gospel. I know that that might sting a little bit, but pull the Band-Aid all the way off. Ministries of mercy can help us to have an opportunity to share the gospel, but we must share it. My good deeds won't save anyone. The word of God is what saves them. And by extension then, my lifestyle is not the power of God for salvation either. A very popular idea in the early part of this 21st century is known as lifestyle evangelism. It's one of the books I had to read when I was studying for my theology degree. And it's this idea that if that I evangelize the loss by my lifestyle. In fact, it's followed up by the expression, always preach the gospel and use words if necessary, right? As if My lifestyle is going to lead people to Christ. Like, if if I'm loving enough and I'm compassionate enough and joyful enough, then people will want to know what's different about me, and then I'll just tell them I'm a Christian and they'll want to be a Christian too. That That is the emphasis of many of church efforts today. But this is just simply false. People are not going to get saved because you're nice. People are not going to get saved because you try to be a good person. By the way, there are a lot of nice atheists in the world around us. A lot of really loving, loving unbelievers around us. People are not going to get saved because you're a good person. Your lifestyle might certainly give you an ability to build relationships so you can begin to speak into people's lives. By the way... That's what it's about, is having the right to come and speak into someone's life, right? And when you do, then you share the gospel, but you still must share with them the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation, not your lifestyle. And by the way, you cannot preach the gospel without words. And neither are my attempts to be relevant the power of God for salvation, doesn't matter how cool I might try to be for the youth group, right? That's not going to get kids saved. And neither is a seeker-sensitive church movement that hopes to create a church environment that will attract non-believers and make them feel comfortable. That is not the power of God to be saved, right? And neither is my ability to speak the power of God to save. Some people think if I just, you know, if I just get them in front of the pastor, then they'll get saved. As if somehow, way, I'm magically more proficient than you. I just need to learn to to speak like Paul Washer. I just need to polish my presentation. I just need to know a little more. I just need to... None of that saves anyone. The gospel, the words of the truth about who Christ is and our need for Him, that is what saves. Your speaking ability is not the power of God to save. And neither are church programs and neither please hear me And neither is your testimony the power of God to save. A lot of people think that, hey, the gospel is me telling people my personal testimony. Your story is powerful. And your testimony might be a great way for you to be able to broach the subject and introduce somebody to the gospel. But your personal testimony is not the gospel. Your religious experience with God one night or one day when you were alone is not the gospel. You know my story. You know how God pierced my heart and saved Carson in the process. You know how God radically changed me on that day. But it wasn't until I heard the gospel that I repented and believed. And even then I tell you that story. If I don't tell you the gospel, what you must do, I've fallen short. Your story is compelling, but it does not have the power to bring someone to faith. The gospel The truth about God and about you and about what God has done for you. The gospel revealed in the Old Testament concerning the the Son. The message is the power of God to save and it must be proclaimed. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Notice the gospel is the power of God to save Not just everyone, but everyone who believes. You see, everyone is qualified by the expression who believes. One of the common things that I hear people say all the time when they want to kind of like see the almost universal nature of the gospel, they they will point to John 3.16, they'll say, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes... know we'll have eternal life not understanding that the Greek has a completely different emphasis than the word whosoever that word whosoever is an English word made up but that doesn't express the idea what Jesus is saying is God so loved the world that he gave his only son that the believing ones are the ones who get saved that's the emphasis and it's the emphasis here right who believes qualifies this expression The gospel saves those who believe and it won't save those who won't. There are those who, as we have said, to whom the gospel is not the power of God to save, but rather it is the power of God to offend them. It is the power of God to make them hateful. It is the power of God for those, it is not the power of God for those who don't believe. The gospel is not the power of God for those who won't have faith. The gospel is for those people who, for who do believe. For those who don't believe, it's the power to make them intolerant. Right. For them, the gospel is foolishness. For them, the gospel is narrow-minded and bigoted. To them, it is not the power of God. It is folly. Again, I'll remind you what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Who are perishing? Those who won't believe. Those who are dying, it's foolishness to them. It is intolerance to them. It's hateful to them. It's harmful to them. Have you heard more and more people saying, the the psychologists talking about the harmful effects of raising your children, being Christians, talking about how harmful Christianity is? This, by the way, is why so many people who claim to follow Christ seek to soften the gospel, right? is because it caused so much offense. This is why the message of the gospel becomes gutted in so many churches and it simply is reduced down to some religious catchphrases in order to maybe hopefully get people's attention and maybe somehow through osmosis will make them Christians. They'll say things like all oh, over and over, Jesus loves you, which is true, but it's part of the truth. Jesus just loves you so much that if you'll just, if you'll just turn to him, he'll make your life better. Jesus wants to come into your life if you'll just let him, as if you can stop the sovereign king of the world. He's knocking at the door. He's yearning to come into your heart. If you'll just be compassionate to this needy Jesus. Or how about Jesus just wants to be your friend. He doesn't want to impose anything on you. He won't violate your free will. If you just accept him, he'll just be your friend. Or how about this one? You've heard this before, I know. God has a wonderful plan for your life. How many of you have heard that before? God has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, that's great, but that's not the gospel. right? The gospel is not God has a wonderful plan for your life because God's wonderful plan might not be wonderful to you. Do you, not, you understand that? Do you realize that? God's wonderful plan for Pharaoh's life wasn't so wonderful for Pharaoh, was it? God's wonderful plan for him was to harden his heart and use him as an object of his wrath and judgment so he can show off his glory to the world. God's wonderful plan for Judas was to use his greed and his betrayal and his own suicide to bring about the greatest redemptive act in history. It's a wonderful plan for the rest of us, but not for Judas. Not to mention the fact that God's wonderful plan for your life might be the fact that you are called to suffer horribly the persecutions of those who hate you for your faith. That might be God's wonderful plan for your life. You see, we think of God's wonderful plan for my life is I become a Christian, I join a church, and suddenly I have more money than I need. right? And then I'm always healthy, and when I get a little bit sick, I just pray to God and I'm healed. You know, my kids never do anything wrong. and. God's. The gospel is not God has a wonderful plan for your life. The gospel is you are a sinner under the wrath and condemnation and judgment of God with no hope at all of saving yourself. But God, in His grace and sheer mercy, sent His Son into the world to do for you all the things that you can't do for yourself so that you can be reconciled to that God. He lived a perfect life, sinless, righteous, fulfilling the law and the covenant of works that is required of anyone who would have fellowship with God. And he willingly went to the cross and suffered the wrath of God for your sins and died in your place. And then three days later was resurrected in victory, proving that the gulf between God and man had been spanned and that Jesus is what he claimed to be, God in the flesh, and that he can do exactly what he promised to do, which is to save you from your sins and the wrath of God. And those who believe that gospel are saved because the message is the power of God to bring them from death to life. The gospel is the power of God to save those who believe. Belief or faith is how we avail ourselves of God's power to save. And notice how the gospel is the great equalizer. It is the power of God to those who believe and that is it. The thing that we need to understand about the gospel is everyone is saved in exactly the same fashion. Everyone gets saved, that gets saved, does so in exactly the same way. It is simply by believing. You're saved by believing, as Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's a gift of God. And what that means for us is that there is no such thing as a superstar Christian. None. 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 We have a habit of making celebrities out of people, and especially celebrity pastors, which is super dangerous. But there is no such thing as a superstar Christian. John MacArthur will not enter the kingdom of heaven by his work and his merits and his, and his work that he's done at Grace Community Church. He's going to get into heaven the same way that you are by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are no VIPs in the Christian world. There's no exclusive memberships. There's not any exclusive benefits. There's not any special behind-the-scenes arrangements. There's no backstage passes. Right? Everyone walks into the door of the kingdom exactly the same way, humbly broken with nothing in your hands except believing the promise of the gospel. That is it. You enter the gates of heaven not by your talent, Not by your delightful disposition or lack thereof. Not by your good works, not by a sincere heart, not by your wealth, not by your political affiliation. Not by your skin color. Or not by anything else that the world would use to divide us into different groups. You're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven by your vaccination or not vaccination status. But I'll tell you, there are people out here in the world that's going to tell you something different. They'll tell you that that's not how it is. But I'm going to tell you right now, you don't enter the kingdom of God by having a vaccine card or not. We enter through the doors of the kingdom of God like everyone else that's gone before us and like everyone else who will go after us. It is by believing the gospel. Notice Paul says to the Jew first and also the Greek, Both Jews and Greeks enter the kingdom of heaven exactly by the same mechanism. It's not by their ethnicity, it's not by their religious tradition, it is not by them keeping the law as people still today would suppose. Those who experience the power of God are those who hear and believe the gospel, and that is it. There has been and there will always be only one way for mankind to enter into God's presence. And that is through faith in Christ. Jesus said that the time is now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This goes for Jew and Gentile alike. Of old and even today, we all are equal at the cross. We all enter the kingdom the same way. Now, Why does it say the Jew first? Why does Paul make that point? Well, some people think that the gospel, you know, was offered to the the Jews first, and then they just simply rejected God wholesale, like all Jews rejected him as an right. And then the God went to plan B and then included the Gentiles. But this is simply not the truth. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for the Jew first because the gospel is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Israel. It is through them that the nations of the world would be blessed. That is the promise that God made to Abraham. And so the gospel came through them in Christ, and it came to them first And many, by the way, many Jews received the kingdom. We forget that. Many Jews received the kingdom. Most Christians at first were Jewish, and then it was offered to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles were grafted in to the very family of God, as Paul will say in this very letter. By the way, the gospel is still for the Jews and the Gentiles today. Sometimes when people talk about this, they think like... like, the hope for Jewish people is over in that sense that we don't evangelize them. In fact, I know a, a pastor, and I, th- I think he should be stripped of that title, but a pastor who claimed we shouldn't even evangelize Jewish people because they're not going to get saved by the gospel. They're saved by the law. The gospel is simply for the Gentiles. Right? But the gospel is still for Jews and Gentiles today because it is the power of God for both of them if they believe. Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for all who believe. And then he says, the righteousness of God is revealed. That in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, let's just follow Paul's train of thought here because he's not just rambling on and reciting religious platitudes. He is, he's making a very clear point. Paul's reason why the gospel is the power of God to save those who believe is because the gospel, the righteousness of God, is revealed in the gospel. Let's follow again his thought all the way through. He says, I am eager to preach the gospel. Well, why, Paul, are you eager to preach the gospel? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, why are you not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of God to save those who believe. Well, what is the power of God to save those who believe? Well, it's it's because in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. You see, we're now finally at the heart of the matter. And we should ask: what is this righteousness that God has now revealed in the gospel? And why is and, and why the righteousness of God? Why is that revealed? Why not the grace of God being revealed? Why not, why not the love of God being revealed? Why this particular thing? The righteousness of God? Well, because as we sang about, and as we've talked about before, righteousness is what's required for mankind to be in the presence of God. We cannot stand in the presence of God without righteousness. You see, righteousness begins as a character of God's nature. It is who He is, which means He is just and right and holy. And that means anyone who will have fellowship with Him, who will have a relationship with Him, must likewise be righteous. It must be perfect in character. Not simply just absent of sin, but completely and totally right. But as we all know, none of us are righteous. In fact, Paul's going to say to us in chapter 3, no one is righteous. No, not one. Which means it's impossible then for anyone to have fellowship with God because we are all uncleaned. We are all stained and unrighteous. But Paul says the gospel is the power of God to save because the gospel, the righteousness of God in it is revealed to us. You see, Paul's not simply talking about God's character here. He's talking about a righteousness A righteousness that we need to be saved. He's talking about the gift of righteousness here. By the way, that took hours of research just on this one subject to get through that. The righteousness that he is talking about is the righteousness that we're given when we believe the gospel. You see, the gospel is the power of God to save because in the gospel, the righteousness that we need to have a relationship with God is revealed to us. The gospel reveals to us, right, that when we believe, and then, and then the gospel, our sins are credited when we believe the gospel. Our sins are credited to Christ, and He pays that debt for us on the cross. But then His righteousness, His perfect life that he earned, living a sinless life, is credited to us as a gift. This is why we say things that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That he is our righteousness. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become, what? The righteousness of of God. Through the gospel, the gift of God's righteousness, a righteousness that makes us perfect so we can stand before God, is revealed to us. And that gift is granted to us how? By faith. Paul says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, this expression from faith, for faith, or from faith to faith. I'm going to tell you this has caused theologians for centuries to debate and argue about what Paul's getting at here. Because what does that mean? Does it mean that it's from God's faithfulness to our faith? Does it mean it's from the evangelist's faith to, to our faith? Does it mean it begins his faith and continues his faith? There are lots and lots and lots and lots of ideas about what all this means, and I will save you the dry details of all the debates and just say this. For us, what this expression simply means is faith is the mechanism by which the gift of righteousness is revealed to us and received by us. It it is revealed to us by faith and is received through faith. The faith, our faith, is the only mechanism that allows us to be right with God. Right? This is the supremacy of faith. This is why we say you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. What Paul is emphasizing here is that it is by faith that we can grasp this truth. It is by faith we avail ourselves of the truth, which Paul then emphasizes by quoting from the Old Testament saying, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul quotes the Old Testament proving that the gospel received by faith is found in the prophets, by the way, as he said before. But also expressing the truth of the gospel, that salvation is always been and always will be through faith alone. In fact, notice he says that the righteous shall live by faith, which again, we know no one is righteous. So how does he say that someone is righteous? How can Paul make a statement like this? It's because righteousness is a gift to those who believe the gospel. Those who have faith are made righteous. And in light of that righteousness, they are granted life, eternal life that begins the moment you believe, as Jesus said, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that the ones who believe will not perish but have eternal life. A life that begins today and lasts forever. That, brothers and sisters, is the power of the gospel. That is the power of God to save. That is why Paul is not ashamed and neither should we be. The world is going to push on you. The world is going to make fun of you. The world is gonna to try to make you retreat and soften the gospel. I've heard recently, again, it's said, you know, I hear preachers look these little buzzwords and say, we, we just need to stop telling people what we're against and just tell people what we're for. It's not the gospel. We gotta tell people the whole picture, we gotta show people the whole truth. We must confront them with the truth of who God is and who they are in light of who God is so they can finally see their need. As we've said before, no one's taking the medicine unless they understand the diagnosis. We must not hesitate to share the gospel. But also we must make sure that we're truly believing the gospel. And so as we wrap up, let me remind you in a very simple formula what the gospel is. gospel. um, It's an acronym. G-O-S-P-E-L. G stands for God, God always at the beginning of the gospel in who He is. God is a holy, righteous, just creator of the entire universe. And He created all things, including us, and He created us special to have a relationship with Him. We were created in His image to reflect His goodness. We were created to enjoy Him forever. But, oh, our sins separated us from God. Our sins create a gulf between us. God cannot have fellowship with sinful man. He is righteous and perfect. He is light. We are darkness. We are the we're the epitome of what he can't be around. Right? But S, sin cannot be paid for by our own efforts. We can't take care of it on our own. We can't make ourselves unsinful. We can't change our own character. That's like trying to, to get to convince a jackrabbit to be a wolf. It just won't happen. Something supernatural must happen, right? But then is the good news. P, payment was made for us. Jesus Christ came into the world. God became flesh and did for us the things that we couldn't do. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And then he died to make payment for our sins, right? And E, everyone who believes that gospel, has L, life, eternal, that begins the moment you believe and lasts forever. That's the gospel. Simply who God is, who we are in light of who God is and what God has done for us and we receive it all by faith in faith alone. And the promise is when you believe, Your sins are washed completely clean, past, present, and future, and you are granted a perfect status before God so you can come boldly before the throne of grace and that you have the power to live today and the assurance that God will receive you home. And on top of that, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you, indwelling you, changing you, shaping you more and more in the image of Christ, convicting you of your sin, leading you in righteousness, leading you into the Word of God, grafting you into this family, making you part of the family of God that we can live together in community forever. That is the power of God. Let us never be ashamed of that. Let me pray for you.